0: Chapter Eleven, Parts One to Six of *The Passionate Friends* by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Eastman. Chapter the Eleventh, The Last Meeting. One. In the summer of 1911, immediately after the coronation of King George, there came one of those storms of international suspicion that ever and again threaten europe with war it seems to have been brewed by some german adepts at weltpolitik those privileged makers of giant bombs who sit at the ears of foreign ministers suggesting idiotic wickedness and it was brewed with a sublime ignorance of nearly every reality in the case a german warship without a word of notice seized agadir on the atlantic coast of morocco within the regions reserved to French influence. An English demand for explanations was uncivilly disregarded, and England and France and presently Germany began vigorous preparations for war. All over the world it was supposed that Germany had at last flung down the gauntlet. In England the war party was only too eager to grasp what it considered to be a magnificent opportunity, Heaven knows what the Germans had hoped or intended by their remarkable coup. The amazing thing to note is that they were not prepared to fight. They had not even the necessary money ready, and they could not get it. They had perhaps never intended to fight, and the autumn saw the danger disperse again, into diplomatic bickerings and insincerely pacific professions. But in the high summer the danger had not dispersed. And in common with every reasonable man, I found myself under the shadow of an impending catastrophe, that would have been none the less gigantic and tragic because it was an imbecility. It was an occasion when every one needs must act, however trivially disproportionate his action may be to the danger. I cabled Gidding, who is in America to get together whatever influences were available there upon the side of Pacific Intervention, and I set such British organs as I could control or approach in the same direction. It seemed probable that Italy would be drawn into any conflict that might ensue. It happened that there was to be a conference of peace societies in Milan early in September, and thither I decided to go, in the not very certain hope, that out of that assemblage some form of European protest might be evolved. That August I was very much run down. I had been staying in London, through almost intolerably hot weather, to attend a race's congress that had greatly disappointed me. I don't know particularly now why I had been disappointed, nor how far the feeling was due to my being generally run down by the pressure of detailed work, and the stress of thinking about large subjects in little scraps of time. But I know that a kind of despair came over me, as I sat and looked at that multicolored assembly, and heard in succession the heavy platitudes of white men, the slick, thin cleverness of Hindus, the rich-toned florid rhetoric of Negroes. I lost sight of any germ of splendid possibility in all those people, and saw all too plainly the vanity, the jealousy, the self-interests that show up so harshly against the professions of every altruistic movement. It seemed all such a windy business, against the firm prejudices, the vast accumulated interests that grind race against race. We had no common purpose at all at that conference, no proposal to hold us together. So much of it was like bleeding on a hillside. I wanted a holiday badly. And then came this war crisis, and I felt unable to go away for any length of time. Even bleeding, it seemed to me, was better than acquiesce in a crime against humanity. So to get heart to bleat at Milan, I snatched at ten days in the Swiss mountains en route. A tour with some taciturn guide, involving a few middling climbs and glacier excursions, seemed the best way of recuperating. I had never had any time for Switzerland since my first exile there years ago. I took the advice of a man in the club whose name I now forget. If ever I knew it, a dark man with a scar and went up to the Schwarzeghut, above Grindelwald, and over the Straleg to the Grimsel. I had never been up into the central mass of the Bernese Oberland before, and I was amazed and extraordinarily delighted by the vast lonely beauty of those interminable uplands of ice. I wished I could have lingered up there. But that is the tragedy of those sunlit desolations. One may not stay one sees and exclaims, and then looks at a watch. I wonder no one has ever taken an arctic equipment up into that wilderness, and had a good healing spell of lonely exaltation. I found the descent from the Straleg as much of a climb as I was disposed to undertake. For an hour we were coming down frozen snow that wasn't so much a slope as a slightly inclined precipice. From the Grimsel I went over the Rhone Glacier to the Inn on the Furka Pass. And then, paying off my guide and becoming frankly a pedestrian, I made my way round by the Schullinen Gorge to Goskenen, and over the susten to the Susten Pass and Stein, meaning to descend to Mehringen. But I still had four days before I went on to Italy, and so I decided to take one more mountain. I slept at the Stein Inn, and started in the morning to do that agreeable first mountain of all, the Titlis, whose shining genial head attracted me. I did not think a guide necessary, but a boy took me up by a track near Godman, and left me to my Siegfried map some way up the great ridge of rocks that overlooks the Angstlenalp. I a little overestimated my mountaineering, and it came about that I was benighted while I was still high above the York Pass on my descent. Some of this was steep and needed caution. I had to come down slowly with my folding lantern, in which a reluctant candle went out at regular intervals, and I did not reach the little inn at Ungstlen-Alp until long after eleven at night. By that time I was very tired and hungry. They told me I was lucky to get a room. Only one stood vacant, I should certainly not have enjoyed sleeping on a billiard-table after my day's work. And I ate a hearty supper, smoked for a time, meditated emptily, and went wearily to bed. But I could not sleep. Usually I am a good sleeper. But ever and again when I have been working too closely or overexerting myself, I have spells of wakefulness and that night, after perhaps an hour's heavy slumber, I became thinly alert, and very weary in body and spirit, and I do not think I slept again. The pain in my leg that the panther had torn had been revived by the day's exertion. For the greater part of my life insomnia has not been disagreeable to me. In the night, in the stillness, one has a kind of detachment from reality, one floats there without light, without weight, feeling very little of one's body. One has a certain disembodiment, and one can achieve a magnanimity of thought, forgiveness, and self-forgetfulness, that are impossible while the body clamours upon one's senses. But that night, because, I suppose, I was so profoundly fatigued, I was melancholy and despondent, I could feel again the weight of the great beast upon me as he clawed me down and I clung, desperately, in that interminable instant before he lost his hold. Yes, I was extraordinarily wretched that night. I was filled with self-contempt and self-disgust. I felt that I was utterly weak and vain, and all the pretensions and effort of my life, mere florid, fruitless pretensions, and nothing more. I had lost all control over my mind. Things that had seemed secondary before became primary. Difficult things became impossible things. I had been greatly impeded and irritated in London by the manoeuvres of a number of people, who were anxious to make capital out of the crisis. Self-advertising people, who wanted at any cost to be lifted into a position of unique protest. You see, that unfortunate Nobel Prize has turned the advocacy of peace into a highly speculative profession. The qualification for the winner is so vaguely defined that a vast multitude of voluntary idealists has been created, and a still greater number diverted from the unendowed pursuit of human welfare in other directions. SUCH A MAN AS MYSELF, WHO IS KNOWN TO COMMAND A CONSIDERABLE PUBLICITY, IS NECESSARILY A PREY TO THOSE MORAL ENTREPRENEURS. ALL SORTS OF RIDICULOUS AND PETTY INCIDENTS HAD FORCED the SIDE OF PUBLIC EFFORT UPON ME. BUT HITHERTO I HAD BEEN ABLE TO SAY, WITH A LAUGH OR SIGH AS THE CASE WARRANTED, SO MUCH AS DEAR OLD HUMANITY, AND ALL OF US, AND TO REMEMBER THE GREAT RESIDUUM OF NOBILITY THAT REMAINED. Now that last saving consideration refused to be credible. I lay with my body and my mind in pain, thinking these people over. Thinking myself over, too, with the rest of my associates. Thinking drearily and weakly, recalling spites, dishonesties, and vanities, feuds and absurdities, until I was near persuaded that all my dreams of wider human understandings, of great ends beyond the immediate aims and passions of common everyday lives, could be, at best, no more than the refuge of shy and weak and ineffective people from the failure of their personal lives. We idealists are not jolly people, not honest simple people. The strain tells upon us. Even to ourselves we are unappetizing aren't the burly bellowing fellows after all rider with their simple natural hostility to everything foreign their valiant hatred of everything unlike themselves their contempt for aspiring weakness their beer and lush sentiment their here to-day and gone to-morrow conviviality and fellowship good fellows while we others lost in filmy speculations in moon and star-snaring and the chase of dreams STUMBLE, WHERE EVEN THEY WALK UPRIGHT. YOU KNOW I HAVE NEVER QUITE BELIEVED IN MYSELF, NEVER QUITE BELIEVED IN MY WORK OR MY RELIGION. SO IT HAS ALWAYS BEEN WITH ME, AND ALWAYS, I SUPPOSE, WILL BE. I KNOW I AM purblind. I KNOW I DO NOT SEE MY WAY CLEARLY, NOR VERY FAR. I HAVE TO DO WITH THINGS IMPERFECTLY APPREHENDED. I cannot cheat my mind away from these convictions. I have a sort of hesitation of the soul, as other men have a limp in their gait. God, I suppose, has a need for lame men. God, I suppose, has a need for blind men, and fearful and doubting men, and does not intend life to be altogether swallowed up in staring sight. Some things are to be reached best by a hearing that is not distracted by any clearer senses. But so it is with me. And this is the innermost secret I have to tell you. I go on valiantly for the most part I know, but despair is always near to me. In the common hours of my life it is as near as a shark may be, near a sleeper in a ship. THE THIN EFFECTUAL PLANK OF MY DELIBERATE FAITH KEEPS ME SECURE. BUT IN THESE RARE DISTRESSES OF THE DARKNESS, THE PLANK SEEMS TO BECOME TRANSPARENT, TO BE ON THE VERGE OF DISSOLUTION. A SENSE OF LIFE AS OF AN ABYSMAL FLOOD, FULL OF CRUELTY, DENSELY futile, BLACKLY AIMLESS, PENETRATES MY DEFENSES. I DON'T THINK I CAN CALL THESE STUMBLINGS FROM CONVICTION UNBELIEF. The limping man walks for all his limping, and I go on in spite of my falls. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. I fell into an inconsecutive review of my life, under this light that touched every endeavor with the pale tints of failure. And as that flow of melancholy reflection went on, it was shot more and more frequently with thoughts of Mary. IT WAS NOT A DISCURSIVE THINKING ABOUT MARY, BUT A DEFINITE FIXED DIRECTION OF THOUGHT TOWARDS HER. I HAD NOT SO THOUGHT OF HER FOR MANY YEARS. I WANTED HER, I FELT, TO COME TO ME AND HELP ME OUT OF THIS DISTRESSFUL PIT INTO WHICH MY SPIRIT HAD FALLEN. I BELIEVED SHE COULD. I PERCEIVED OUR SEPARATION AS AN irreparable LOSS. She had a harder, clearer quality than I, a more assured courage, a readier, surer movement of the mind. Always she had lift for me. And then I had a curious impression that I had heard her voice calling my name, as one might call out in one's sleep. I dismissed it as an illusion, and then I heard it again, so clearly that I sat up and listened, breathless. Mixed up with all this was the intolerable uproar and talking of a little cascade not fifty yards from the hotel. It is curious how distressing that clamor of running water, which is so characteristic of the Alpine night, can become. At last those sounds can take the likeness of any voice whatever. The water, I decided, had called to me, and now it mocked and laughed at me. THE NEXT MORNING I DESCENDED AT SOME LATE HOUR BY SWISS RECKONING AND DISCOVERED TWO LADIES IN THE MORNING SUNLIGHT, AWAITING BREAKFAST AT A LITTLE GREEN TABLE. ONE ROSE SLOWLY AT THE SIDE OF ME, AND STOOD, AND SURVEYED ME WITH A GLAD AMAZEMENT. Two. THERE SHE STOOD, REAL AND SOLID a little unfamiliar in her tweeds and with her shining eyes intimate and unforgettable as though i had never ceased to see them for all those intervening years and bracing us both and holding back our emotion was quite unmistakably miss summersley satchel a blonde business-like young woman with a stumpy nose very cruelly corrugated and inflamed by a pince that savagely did much more than its duty by its name. She remained seated, tilting her chair a little, pushing herself back from the table and regarding me... intelligently. It was one of those moments in life when one is taken unawares. I think our common realization of the need of masking the reality of our encounter the hasty search in our minds for some plausible face upon this meeting must have been very obvious to the lady who observed us mary's first thought was for a pseudonym mine was to make it plain we met by accident it's mr stephen said mary it's you dropped out of the sky from over there i was benighted and got there late Very late? One gleam of light, and a yawning waiter. Or I should have had to break windows. And then I meet you. Then for a moment or so we were silent, with our sense of the immense gravity of this position growing upon us. A little tow-headed waiter-boy appeared with their coffee and rolls, on a tray poised high on his hand. You'll have your coffee out here with us said mary where else said i as though there was no conceivable alternative and told the tow-headed waiter belatedly mary turned to introduce me to her secretary my friend miss summersley satchel mr stephen miss satchel and i bowed to each other and agreed that the lake was very beautiful in the morning light mr stephen said mary in entirely unnecessary explanation is an old friend of my mother's and i haven't seen him for years how is mrs stephen and the children i answered briefly and began to tell of my climb down the titlis i addressed myself with unnecessary explicitness to miss satchel i did perhaps over accentuate the extreme fortuitousness of my appearance from where i stood the whole course of the previous day after i had come over the shoulder was visible it seemed a soft little shining pathway to the top but the dangers of the descent had a romantic intensification in the morning light the rule of the game said i is that one stops and waits for daylight i wonder if any one keeps that rule we talked for a time of mountains I still standing a little aloof until my coffee came. Miss Summersley Satchel produced that frequent, and most unpleasant by-product of a British education, an intelligent interest in etymology. "'I wonder,' she said, with a brow of ruffled omniscience, and eyeing me rather severely with a magnified eye, why, it is called titless? There must be some reason.' presently miss satchel was dismissed indoors on a transparent excuse and mary and i were alone together we eyed one another gravely perhaps all the more gravely because of the wild excitement that was quickening our pulse and breathing and thrilling through our nerves she pushed back the plate before her and put her dear elbows on the table and dropped her chin between her hands, in an attitude that seemed all made of little memories. I suppose, she said, something of this kind was bound to happen. She turned her eyes to the mountains shining in the morning light. I'm glad it has happened in a beautiful place. It might have been anywhere. Last night, I said, I was thinking of you and wanting to hear your voice again. I thought I did. I, too. I wonder if we had some dim perception. She scanned my face. Stephen, you are not much changed. You are looking well. But your eyes, they're dog-tired eyes. Have you been working too hard? A conference. What did you call them once? A Carnegieish conference in London. Hot weather and fussing work, and endless hours of weak, grey, dusty speeches. And perhaps that clamour over their yesterday was too much. It was too much. In India I damaged a leg. I had meant to rest here for a day. Well, rest here. With you? Why not? Now you are here. But— After all, we've promised. It's none of our planning, Stephen. It seems to me I ought to go right on, so soon as breakfast is over. She weighed that with just the same still pause, the same quiet moment of lips and eyes that I recalled so well. It was as things had always been between us, that she should make her decision first and bring me to it. IT ISN'T NATURAL, SHE DECIDED, WITH THE SUN RISING, AND THE DAY STILL FRESHLY BEGINNING, THAT YOU SHOULD GO, OR THAT I SHOULD GO. I'VE WANTED TO MEET YOU LIKE THIS, AND TALK ABOUT THINGS, TEN THOUSAND TIMES. AND AS FOR ME, STEPHEN, I WON'T GO. AND I WON'T LET YOU GO IF I CAN HELP IT. NOT THIS MORNING, ANYHOW. NO, GO LATER IN THE DAY, IF YOU WILL. And let us two take this one talk that God Himself has given us. We've not planned it. It's His doing, not ours.' I sat yielding. "'I am not so sure of God's participation,' I said. "'But I know I am very tired, and glad to be with you. I can't tell you how glad. So glad I think i should weep if i tried to say it three four five hours perhaps even if people know is it so much worse than thirty minutes we've broken the rules already we've been flung together it's not our doing stephen a little while longer adds so little to the offence and means to us yes i said but if justin knows He won't. Your companion? There was the briefest moment of reflection. She's discretion itself, she said. Still, if he's going to know, the harm is done. We may as well be hung for a sheep as a lamb. And he won't know. No one will know. The people here. Nobody's here. Not a soul who matters. I doubt if they know my name. No one ever talks to me. I sat in the bright sunshine, profoundly enervated and quite convinced, but still maintaining out of mere indolence a show of hesitation. You take the good things God sends you, Stephen, as I do. You stay and talk with me now, before the curtain falls again. We've tired of letters. You stay and talk to me. "'Here we are, Stephen, and it's the one chance "'that is ever likely to come to us in all our lives. "'We'll keep the point of honour, and you shall go to-day. "'But don't let's drive the point of honour into the quick. "'Go easy, Stephen, old friend. "'My dear, my dear, what has happened to you? "'Have you forgotten? "'Of course. "'Is it possible for you to go, mute, with so much that we can say?' AND THESE MOUNTAINS, AND THE SUNLIGHT? I looked up to see her with her elbows on the table, and her hands clasped under her chin, that face close to mine, her dear blue eyes watching me, and her lips a little apart. No other human being has ever had that effect upon me, so that I seem to feel the life and stir in that other body more than I feel my own. 3. From the moment when I confessed my decision to stay, we gave no further thought to the rightfulness or wisdom of spending the next few hours together. We thought only of those hours. Things lent themselves to us. We stood up and walked out in front of the hotel, and there moored to a stake at the edge of the water was a little leaky punt the one vessel on the Angstlandse. We would take food with us, as we decided, and row out there, to where the vast cliffs came sheer from the water, out of earshot or interference, and talk for all the time we had. And I remember now how Mary stood and called to Miss Satchel's window to tell her of this intention, and how I discovered again THAT EXQUISITE SLENDER GRACE I KNEW SO WELL. YOU KNOW THE VERY ROWING OUT FROM THE SHORE HAD IN IT SOMETHING SWEET AND INCREDIBLE. IT WAS AS IF WE WERE BUT DREAMING TOGETHER, AND MIGHT AT ANY MOMENT AWAKEN AGAIN, COUNTLESS MILES AND A THOUSAND THINGS APART. I ROWED SLOWLY WITH THOSE clumsy SWISS OARS THAT ONE MUST THRUST FORWARD breaking the smooth crystal of the lake. And she sat sideways looking forward, saying very little, and with much the same sense, I think, of enchantment and unreality. And I saw now for the first time as I watched her over my oars, that her face was changed. She was graver, and, I thought, stronger than the Mary I had known. Even now I can still doubt if that boat and lake were real. And yet I remember even minute and irrelevant details of the day's impressions, with an extraordinary and exquisite vividness. Perhaps it is that very luminous distinctness which distinguishes these events from the common experiences of life, and puts them so above the quality of things that are ordinarily real. We rowed slowly past a great headland, and into the bay at the upper end of the water. We had not realized at first that we could row beyond the range of the hotel windows. The rock that comes out of the lake is a clear dead white when it is dry, and very faintly tinted. But when it is wetted it lights warmly with flashes and blotches of color, and is seen to be full of the most exquisite and delicate veins. It splinters vertically, and goes up in cliffs, very high and sculptured, with a quality almost of porcelain, that at a certain level suddenly become more rude and massive, and begin to overhang. Under the cliffs the water is very deep and blue-green, and runs here and there into narrow clefts. This place where we landed was a kind of beach left by the recession of the ice, All the rocks immediately about us were ice-worn, and the place was paved with ice-worn boulders. Two huge bluffs put their foreheads together above us, and hid the glacier from us, but one could feel the near presence of ice in the air. Out between them boiled a little torrent, and spread into a hundred intercommunicating channels amidst the great pebbles and those pebbles were covered by a network of marvellously gnarled and twisted stems, bearing little leaves and blossoms, a network at once very ancient and very fresh, giving a peculiar gentleness and richness to the alpine severity that had dwarfed and tangled them. It was astounding that any plant could find nourishment among those stones. The great headland, with patches of yellowish old snow still lingering here and there upon its upper masses, had crept insensibly between us and the remote hotel, and now hid it altogether. There was nothing to remind us of the world that had separated us, except that old and leaky boat we had drawn up upon the stones at the limpid water's edge. It is as if we had come out of life together, she whispered, giving a voice to my thought. She sat down upon a boulder, and I sat on a lower slab a yard or so away, and we looked at one another. "'It's still unreal,' she said. I felt awkward and at a loss as I sat there before her, as a man unused to drawing-rooms might feel in the presence of a strange hostess. "'You are so you!' I said, so altogether my nearest thing. And so strange, too, so far off, that I feel shy. I'm shy, I repeated. I feel that if I speak loudly, all this will vanish. I looked about me. But surely this is the most beautiful place in the whole world. Is it indeed in the world? Stephen, my dear,' she began presently, "'what a strange thing life is! Strange! The disproportions! The things that will not fit together! The little things that eat us up, and the beautiful things that might save us and don't save us, don't seem indeed to have any meaning in regard to ordinary sensible affairs. This beauty—' do you remember stephen how long ago in the old park you and i talked about immortality and you said then you did not want to know anything of what comes after life even now do you want to know you are too busy and i am not busy enough i want to be sure not only to know but to know that it is so that this life-no not this life but that life is only the bleak twilight of the morning i think death just dead death after the life i have had is the most impossible of ends you don't want particularly i want to passionately i want to live again out of this body stephen and all that it carves with it to be free as beautiful things are free to be free as this is free an exquisite clean freedom i can't believe that the life of this earth is all that there is for us or why should we ever think it strange why should we still find the ordinary matter-of-fact things of every day strange we do because they aren't us eating stuffing into ourselves thin slices of what were queer little hot and eager beasts The perpetual need to do such things. And all the mad fury of sex, Stephen. We don't live, we suffocate in our living bodies. They storm and rage and snatch. It isn't us, Stephen, really. It can't be us. It's all so excessive. If it is anything more than the first furious rush into existence Of beings that will go on, GO ON AT LAST TO QUITE BEAUTIFUL REAL THINGS, LIKE THIS PERHAPS. TODAY THE WORLD IS BEAUTIFUL INDEED, WITH THE SUN SHINING AND LOVE SHINING, AND YOU, MY DEAR, SO NEAR TO ME. IT'S SO INCREDIBLE THAT YOU AND I MUST PART TODAY. IT'S AS IF SOMEONE TOLD ME THE SUN WAS A LITTLE MAD. IT'S SO PERFECTLY NATURAL TO BE WITH YOU AGAIN. Her voice sank. She leant a little forward towards me. Stephen, suppose that you and I were dead today. Suppose that when you imagined you were climbing yesterday, you died. Suppose that yesterday you died, and that you just thought you were still climbing as you made your way to me. Perhaps you are dead up there on the mountain, and I am lying dead in my room in this hotel and this is the great beginning. Stephen, I am talking nonsense, because I am so happy to be with you here. 4. For a time we said very little. Then, irregularly, disconnectedly, we began to tell each other things about ourselves. The substance of our lives seemed strangely objective that day, We had, as it were, come to one another clean out of our common conditions. She told me of her troubles and her secret weaknesses. We bared our spirits and confessed. Both of us had the same tale of mean and angry and hasty impulses. Both of us could find kindred inconsistencies. Both had an exalted assurance that the other would understand completely and forgive and love. She talked for the most part. She talked much more than I, with a sort of wonder at the things that had happened to her. And for long spaces we did not talk at all, nor feel the need of talking. And what seems very strange to me now, seeing that we had been impassioned lovers, we never kissed. We never kissed at all. I do not even remember that I thought of kissing her. We had a shyness between us, that kept us a little apart. And I cannot remember that we ever touched one another, except that for a time she took me, and led me by the hand towards a little place of starry flowers that had drawn her eyes, and which she wished me to see. Already for us too, our bodies were dead and gone. We were shy, shy of any contact. We were a little afraid of one another, There was a kind of awe between us that we had met again. And in that strange and beautiful place, her fancy that we were dead together, had a fitness that I cannot possibly convey to you. I cannot give you by any writing the light and the sweet freshness of that high desolation. You would need to go there. What was lovely in our talk, being said in that setting, would seem but a rambling discourse were I to write it down, as I believe that even now I could write it down. Word for word almost, every thought of it, so fresh does it remain with me. My dear, some moments are eternal. It seems to me that as I write to tell you of this, I am telling you not of something that happened two years ago but of a thing immortal it is as if i and mary were together there holding the realities of our lives before us as though they were little sorry tales written in books upon our knees Five. it was still in the early afternoon that we came down again, across the meandering ice-water streams to our old boat, and pushed off, and rowed slowly out of that magic corner, back to every day again. Little we knew to what it was we rowed. As we glided across the water, and rounded the headland, and came slowly into view of the hotel again, Mary was reminded of our parting, and for a little while she was disposed to make me remain if you could stay a little longer, she said, another day. If any harm is done, it's done. It has been beautiful, I said, this meeting. It's just as if, when I was so jaded and discouraged, that I could have put my work aside and despaired altogether. Some power had said, have you forgotten the friendship I gave you? But we shall have had our time. We've met. We've seen one another, we've heard one another, we've hurt no one. Will you go? Today, before sunset. Isn't it right that I should go? Stay, she whispered, with a light in her eyes. No, I dare not. She did not speak for a long time. Of course, she said at last. "'You're right. You only said—I would have said it for you if you had not. "'You're so right, Stephen. I suppose, poor silly little things, "'that if you stayed we should certainly begin making love to each other. "'It would be necessary. We should fence about a little, "'and then there it would be, no barrier to stop us and neither of us wants it to happen it isn't what we want you would become urgent i suppose and i should be coquettish in spite of ourselves that power would make us puppets as if already we hadn't made love i could find it in my heart now stephen i could make you stay oh why are we so tormented stephen in the next world we shall meet And this will trouble us no longer. The love will be there. Oh, the love will be there, like something that has at last got itself fully born, got itself free from some queer clinging seed case. We shall be rid of jealousy, Stephen, that inflammation of the mind, that bitterness, that pitiless sore, so that I shan't be tormented by the thought of Rachel, and she will be able to tolerate me. She was so sweet and wonderful a girl, with those dark eyes, and I've never done her justice, never, nor she me. I snatched you from her, I snatched you. Some day we shall be different. All this putting oneself round another person like a fence, against every one else, almost against everything else, it's so wicked, so fierce. It's so possible to be different. Sometimes now, sometimes for long parts of a day, I have no base passions at all, even in this life, to be like that always. But I can't see clearly how these things can be. One dreams of them in a kind of luminous mist, and if one looks directly at them, they vanish again. 6 and at last we came to the landing, and moored the little boat, and walked up the winding path to the hotel. The dull pain of separation was already upon us. I think we had forgotten Miss Summersley Satchel altogether. But she appeared as we sat down to tea at that same table at which we had breakfasted, and joined us as a matter of course conceivably she found the two animated friends of the morning had become rather taciturn. Indeed there came a lapse of silence so portentous that I roused myself to effort, and told her, all over again as I realized afterwards, the difficulties that had benighted me upon Titlis. Then Miss Satchel regaled Mary with some particulars of the various comings and goings of the hotel. I became anxious to end this tension, and went into the inn to pay my bill and get my knapsack. When I came out, Mary stood up. "'I'll come just a little way with you, Stephen,' she said. And I could have fancied the glasses of the companion flashed to hear the surname of the morning reappear a Christian name in the afternoon. "'Is that woman behind us safe?' I asked, breaking the silence as we went up the mountainside. Mary looked over her shoulder for a contemplative second. She's always been discretion itself. We thought no more of Miss Satchel. This parting, said Mary, is the worst of the price we have to pay. Now it comes to the end, there seem a thousand things one hasn't said. And presently she came back to that. We shan't remember this so much, perhaps. It was there we met, over there in the sunlight, among those rocks. I suppose, perhaps, we managed to say something. As the ascent grew steeper, it became clear that if I was to reach the Melksay Inn by nightfall, our moment for parting had come. And with a, well, and a white-lipped smile, and a glance at the Argus-eyed hotel, She held out her hand to me. "'I shall live on this, Brother Stephen,' she said, for years. "'I, too,' I answered. "'It was wonderful to stand and face her there, "'and see her real and living, with the warm sunlight on her, "'and her face one glowing tenderness. "'We clasped hands. "'All the warm life of our hands met and clung.' and parted. I went on alone up the winding path. It zigzags up the mountainside, in full sight of the hotel, for the better part of an hour, climbing steadily higher, and looking back, and looking back, until she was just a little strip of white, that halted and seemed to wave to me. I waved back, and found myself weeping you fool, I said to myself, go on. And it was by an effort that I kept on my way, instead of running back to her again. Presently the curvature of the slope came up between us, and hid her altogether, hid the hotel, hid the lakes and the cliffs. It seemed to me that I could not possibly see her any more. It was as if I knew. That sun had set forever. End of chapter eleven, parts one to six.